Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Finally. Almost. A U.S. stimulus deal is all but done, and a Brexit deal appears to be within reach. But the one thing we know for sure is that we have a vaccine. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Well, the Federal Reserve is going to try and lower interest rates. That will help. That will bring some vigor back to the economy. But it can only be mended by a, an increasing uh, willingness on the part of the public to buy goods, a, a general confidence in the system itself, and much of that has been eroded over a number of years. That was PIMCO's Bill Gross back in 1990. The Federal Reserve met again this week, but gone are the days when it can restore vigor to the economy by cutting interest rates. Instead, Fed Chair Jay Powell tried to restore that vigor by assuring the markets that the Fed will continue to buy bonds until the economy is substantially better than it is today. We asked BlackRock's Rick Reeder whether those words were likely to do the trick. I mean, I, well, I mean, they're they're on a persistent movement to support the economy. I think there was a, there was a lot of analysis that that said that the Fed was hawkish because they didn't increase the weighted average maturity, or they didn't actually increase the asset purchase program. Anybody who describes this Fed as hawkish is so misguided. This is a Fed that is just going to continue to be there and be as accommodative. They, you know, they said they're going to continue the asset purchase program at least as large, both in treasuries and mortgages. By the way, I don't even think they need to increase mortgages at all. In fact, I think they could shrink them. But they're going to, they're going to keep going, and they're going to be incredibly supportive of the new administration and fiscal stimulus from here. Well, let's pick up on that exactly, Rick. Why are they uh, sticking with this allocation for mortgages? You know, I, I mean, I, I actually, while well, I think the Fed's doing a brilliant job, this I don't think they need to do that. I mean, if you think about there aren't enough mortgages to purchase from what they're what they're doing. The banks are dying for those assets, and uh, and the levels are incredibly low. And even if they slowed down the purchase program, rates aren't mortgage rates aren't moving higher. The demand for mortgage product is incredible. And then you take the other side of it: the housing market 
is in incredibly good shape. And if you think about it, you know, one of the things that is a risk for a particularly lower and middle income is the housing market is doing so well that you'll continue to see increased home prices, which I would argue that is the one part of inflation that I actually think is real. And, it, and quite frankly, it's burdensome to a lot of the economy and a lot of particularly lower and middle income. So anyway, that part I don't, other than signaling we're just not going <laughs> to, we're not going to pull any accommodation, um, I don't think they need to do that. So, so as I say, the message out of the Fed, I thought, was we think in 2021 it's going to start getting better, presumably in large part because of the vaccine, which we're hoping for so much. At the same time, there's a real divergence, maybe even a bifurcation in the marketplace, whether it's individuals or it's companies, between some people who are doing very, very well and some people who are doing very, very badly. Yeah, I mean, David, you hit the nail on the head. Listen, but I think this is, you know, what the central bank does is, you know, its tools are blunt. And a lot of what happens is it lifts financial assets and it creates a this bifurcation, as you described. And it doesn't, you know, what the Fed can do is it sort of paves the runway for for other policy to come in. Now you really need the fiscal. And the fiscal is where you can direct tax policy, where you can direct where the stimulus gets to, things like state and local, things like health care spending, uh, education spending, et cetera, things that can actually close that gap. I mean, you know, now we ha- we actually are going to get what I think, particularly when you think about Chair Yellen, I still call her Chair Yellen, the uh, the Treasury Secretary, and, and now you've got functionally two Fed chairs that are going to operate in concert with one another, and that's where you get really effective policy when when fiscal and monetary work hand in glove with one another. So, is that constructive, or does that undermine the independence of the Fed? I mean, how closely do you want the two of them to operate together? You've called it sort of pilot and co-pilot. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a great question. I do believe in the in the independence, and and I certainly know that people at the Fed really believe in the independence of the Fed. However. You know, you you do create some coordination. Uh, by the way, having where they're, where they're not talking, that is a, that is a problem. Um, but having some coordination coordination makes sense, particularly as you described earlier. We've got a problem in the country that we need to put more people to work. You know, until vaccines starts to really get implemented, we need to put more people to work, and we need to stabilize an economy and employment dynamic that is real. And so, you know, that that idea that the Fed's going to neutralize. The debt that the, uh, that the that the fiscal is going to put on, and by the way, I, you know, I think I think Larry Summers is going to talk about this. Their paper that they wrote on the system can actually withstand more debt is a hundred percent right. And as long as, and a big part of it is, the Fed is keeping rates low, so the interest burden on the economy is not onerous. Yeah, no question. This goes to Larry Summers' secular stagnation, that the problem we have is too much savings, not too little, that we need to actually be investing and spending some money. The question always is, Rick, isn't it, how do you spend that money? Okay, you can borrow really cheap, but it depends on how you how you spend it or invest it. Uh, it's definitely right. I mean, by the way, I think we're at a point in time today, what Larry says is dead right, is the amount of savings. I mean, you think about the liquidity in the system. Um, what's been created, the aging demographic, I know we've talked about for years, pensions, life insurance companies, the, need, the ability to fund is extraordinary. Savings do outweigh the assets by a lot. And that's why you're seeing appreciation in so many assets across uh, across different markets. But you're right. I mean, there's different return on equities, as it were, uh, return on equity possibilities, spending on how the government spends the money. I actually think we're at a point in time today that the velocity of tax dollars working their way through that, that comes on the backside of fiscal um, quite frankly, lowers the bar for what those returns need to be for those government programs. But like you say, some are obviously 
much more efficacious than others. And uh, but I truly think that that, quite frankly, most of the fiscal stimulus you put in today is going to is going to create a velocity and, and which impacts the monetary base um, that the Fed has created in a very positive way. That was Rick Reeder, CIO for Global Fixed Income and head of the Global Allocation Investment Team at BlackRock. Coming up, a major cyber attack on the U.S. government, pointing out again how vulnerable we are, something that Sam Palmasano, the former head of IBM, knows about. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We learned this week about a massive hack of government computers. We still don't know, frankly, how many were hacked or how much data was taken. It was bad enough that the National Security Advisor had to come back from his trip overseas to try to assess the situation. To help us assess the situation, we now have the former chairman and CEO of IBM, Sam Palmasano. Sam also served as the vice chair of President Obama's commission trying to deal with cybersecurity. He knows just a little bit about it, and now he has an institute to try to address the issues. So when you heard this this week, what did you make of it? My first reaction when I heard about it, uh, quite honestly, I thought it was the Chinese. Uh, and I'll tell you why I say that, because if you look at the historic, historic pattern of the various types of attacks that have occurred in the past, that this is more like the Chinese trying to get access to information and data, and then the Russians had their own strategies. And we can talk about, you know, uh, election interference and the like, as well as in the financial side of transactions. So, however, obviously that's not the case. I mean, this time it was the Russians and whatever they call themselves, Cozy Bear or APT29, whatever it happens to be. I think that from what I've read and what I hear from my friends in, uh, in the government, that they're pretty confident that's who it was this time. Uh, now, having said all that, I mean, I think it does wake the nation up to the uh, risk we faced if we don't do something about our cybersecurity and our infrastructures. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. So, so how does this happen, Sam? I mean, for those of us who don't understand this world the way you do, this is not the first hack we've, ta- we've heard about, either of government computers or often of private sector computers. And yet it seems it was quite vulnerable. This organization, SolarWinds, a private company, has something like 275 or 300,000 different customers. About 18,000, they say, may have been affected here. But it included things like the Treasury Department and the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security, the IRS. How, how can we be that vulnerable at this point? Well, I mean, actually, David, if you if you kind of stand back from this hack, uh, and it's, there's a pattern of this. In fact, we studied this in the Obama Commission, and my my uh, as you mentioned, my think tank is focused on this as well. And think about it as your supply chain. In this particular case, 
Solar Wind is a provider of services, network services, but services to all these various entities. And that's the nature of their business. However, they're, they're very innovative. They're very good. They're growing very, very quickly. But, but perhaps they weren't as thorough as they needed to be as far as securing their particular platform itself. I don't know that, but the suspicion is that they were able to get in, uh, the hackers were able to get in and through a, what they would call a backdoor or a vulnerability. And then through that vulnerability, they were in there for a long time. And that's where they go undetected, which is the complexity of trying to figure out how this happened and who they are and what the impact is, because they've been kind of invisible then all of a sudden something happens where they become apparent. Uh, either a big data set starts to disappear or whatever that happens to be, or the government sees what's going on and they have to begin to react. But the point of it is, is that the key is the vulnerability of people's supply chains. I mean, if you were going to go hack the U.S. government, you wouldn't go hack the military or NSA or CIA. You would hack the civilian side of government, which is not nearly as secure, coming through one of their providers, their service providers. No different than if you're going to attack, hack a bank. I mean, to go after a bank that's spending billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars to protect their infrastructure is very challenging. However, if you go through someone within their supply chain, some small innovative company that they're using to either help with technology or just sell their products and those sorts of things, they're the ones that are the most vulnerable. And then therefore, you, your entity is vulnerable because they're part of your operations. Well, that raises the question, how dependent are we in the government on those independent contractors? And not just the contractors, I understand it, but the subcontractors and the subcontractors to the subcontractors. We're very dependent on them. And you saw that not just in cyber, go back to the pandemic when all of a sudden we couldn't get PPE and those sorts of things. So there's a total dependency on the supply chain and those suppliers within the government. That's not a bad thing. I mean, quite honestly, but what it, what it requires is the government establish standards, just like a company would establish standards, that if you're going to be a provider of services to us, whether that's software, people, whatever it happens to be, you have to comply with these cyber standards. Now, there's a standard that was established uh, called NIST by the, in the Commerce Department that we worked on years ago. That's a very good standard, by the way, to, to secure the infrastructure. And a lot of the private sec sector companies are complying with that. What we did in my little think tank uh, with think of the Cyber Readiness Institute, we felt that people weren't going to focus on these very small businesses. So we created a whole set of tools that we distribute for free. I mean, they're actually for free. We're a nonprofit, so we can do these sorts of things. And we probably have hundreds of thousands of subscribers now, even small spas with three or four employees, not just companies or government agencies, to give them a basic level of protection when it comes to cyber threats. Now, the point of it, again, is that why are we doing this is because if you're General Motors or ExxonMobil or some large entity, you have all these small little partners involved in your infrastructure, drilling operation, car dealerships, et cetera, et cetera. So you want to be able to protect yourself uh, from their vulnerabilities, not just your own from a cyber perspective. We have uh, President-elect Biden coming to office January 20. Uh, who does he have responsible for this? Or who does the current president, President Trump, have responsible for this? Who does he call up when he hears about something like this? Well, that's a great, I mean, that is a great question, my friend. That is unbelievably a great question. I would say they should start with somebody within the White House staff, but let's talk about it as it is today versus as maybe a, a point of view as it should be. As it is today, there is an agency uh, called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. It's part of the Department of Homeland Security that is responsible for these kinds of hacks, for agency protection, pandemics, all sorts of things, but they are the responsible agency that does these things. As you might recall, there's nobody leading that agency at this point in time because they were all fired. 
So there's no one in the agency at the agency level who is in charge of leading these operations. There's also no one in the White House staff either, by the way, because as uh, it was part of the focus in the National Security Council, the Obama administration, we uh, proposed in the executive order that they elevate it to give it a, establish a higher set of priorities. That would be a visible way to create priority within the government is elevate that person or that individual. Uh, since then, that actually has been kind of uh, lessened. Their responsibilities have been lessened and therefore obviously their focus and their impact has been lessened. So I'm the president of the United States, sitting president of the United States, and I wanted to call somebody from my staff in my office to tell me, hey, what's going on? What should we be doing? Uh, there's no one there. Oh. Do we have the people in the United States government somewhere, working somewhere, who have the technical expertise to deal with this? I mean, this is very sophisticated stuff. Certainly, I wouldn't know how to go about dealing with it. But do we have the level of sophistication in the people we have employed in the government? Yes, we do. But it's, it's, it's more in, I'll call it the national security and the defense establishment. They really are excellent skills. If you look at what I, they refer to as dot mil, you know, uh, U.S. government dot mil versus dot gov, which is the civilian side. They're very, very uh, good at this. They have good infrastructure. They actually do a pretty good job uh, in defending their own infrastructure as well as our country. It's when you get to the civilian side of government, you know, whether it's, you mentioned Treasury, the previous acts were hacks were OP, the Office of Personnel and Management, OPM, IRS, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have the same level of skill and their infrastructure is very antiquated. That was Sam Palmisano, former chairman and CEO of IBM. Coming up, the vaccine is good news, but how good is it? And what do we need to do until everybody gets it? This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Well, every single day seems to bring new news about vaccines, but also new instances of COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations and, yes, deaths. The question then is, how do we get from the current crisis to the time when we can start to get our lives back together again? Well, Partners in Health is leading the way in that with its pioneering in, the, in testing and in tracing across the country. Welcome to the CEO of Partners in Health. She is Dr. Sheila Davis. So, Dr. Davis, thank you so much for being with us. Give us a sense of what you are doing at Partners in Health. Yeah, in the U.S., we've been working closely, certainly through the in the state of Massachusetts at the invitation of Governor Baker and then in 11 other jurisdictions in the U.S. who have asked us to come in and help. And we've taken lessons learned from our work around the world in Haiti and Sierra Leone and other places on how to actually do contact tracing as one piece of a comprehensive plan. We really need a strong public health system. And this COVID-19 has illuminated, I think, that in the U.S. we're really lacking a robust public health response. Well, that's one of the interesting things here. I heard someone say, I think Larry Summers actually said, we've overinvested in private health, underinvested in public health. As you say, uh, Partners in Health originated really in Haiti, but you've done extensive work in other countries, including Rwanda, elsewhere around the world. What can we learn from some of the less developed countries that can really be applied and we need here in the United States of America? Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, there's a lot we can learn. We know that other countries that do not have the same investment in health have done much better through this pandemic 
And I think a lot of it is because there is a comprehensive healthcare system that does have a public health model that includes contact tracing, that includes much more of people embedded in the community, like community health workers. We still need high-tech ICUs in all the places that we work, but we definitely can have lessons learned from Rwanda, which has done a fantastic pandemic control in other places, and how do we infuse those into the U.S. health system and really build a system that's not reliant just on hospitals um, as the pinnacle of all of the healthcare. We've seen the testing ramp up from very, very modest origins, and now it, it seems to be moving along in most of the United States. At the same time, I wonder about the tracing part of it, because I know you're very involved in that. We have reports, for example, out of uh, New Jersey, for example, uh, where we had reports from Governor Murphy that maybe 70 percent of the people contacted don't comply, don't cooperate in helping with the tracing. You know, I think what we've found is that when people are, when we're able to also assess what their needs are, a lot of people are not able to isolate or quarantine safely if they uh, don't have the social support that's needed. People need diapers, people need formula, people need food. So a core component of what we embedded in the Massachusetts program, as well as um, with other places we're working, is that there's a, a direct connection to when our contact tracers reach out, which is the advantage of versus a text or some other type of, of tech option and assessing, do people need help? Do they need a place to stay where they can safely isolate from their family members? So it, it really is, um, it has to be a, a more of a safety net model. So I think most people do want to comply, but many people don't have the ability to have a separate wing in their home or a separate way to have food brought in. Now, that sounds like a pretty labor-intensive effort. As you say, it's not just a technological fix of figuring out who's got it and who might give it to somebody, but how do we support you? In fact, you have it and you have to isolate or you have to quarantine somehow. How labor-intensive is this? How many people do you have working on this? You know, in Massachusetts, in, in collaboration with, with other members of the state agencies, which has been a phenomenal experience for us and we've learned a lot, we have um, now over 2,000 people who are working on this effort, but really they're people who are picking up the phone, talking to people, people, um, you know, assessing what their needs are and connecting them to existing resources in the state. So a lot of it was not, certainly some new money was infused for the social support efforts, but part of it was also making sure that we're connecting the dots. And if we look at the overall cost of, of what it costs to have robust public health programs, it's much cheaper in the long run than a, a few days, weeks, or months in a hospital, which is the most expensive place, certainly, to have care. How widely distributed is this in the United States? I mean, you've mentioned Massachusetts. I remember the governor of Massachusetts at the news conference announcing early on that he was going to turn to partners and help to help them on the tracing. How far beyond Massachusetts has it gone? So we're now currently working in 11 different jurisdictions, and it's anywhere from states to counties to working with mayor's office um, offices. And we're also taking lessons learned and having a learning collaborative, which is an open sourced ability for um, lessons learned to be shared from Illinois to North Carolina in a, in a way that we're continuing to learn from each other. So we have staff embedded in all of these different places, and they are providing technical support. They're looking at um, connecting for convening for knowledge sharing and also we're really um, uh, committed to advocacy and that we're using this moment to also look at how do we have a better health system in the U.S. that really focuses on those who are who need it most and those who have been most disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. That was Dr. Sheila Davis, CEO of Partners in Health.
Coming up, we wrap up our week as we do every week with Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. As we do every week, we conclude our week with Larry Summers, our special contributor, former Treasury Secretary of Harvard. So, Larry, great to have you back with us. We finally, finally are going to get that stimulus, about $900 billion. What do you make of it? Better than the alternative. Good insurance against uh, things going wrong. Uh, Glad to see more investments in... uh, testing. Really sorry to see that we're not supporting state and local governments. It's not a healthy thing that we couldn't reach some kind of compromise on the liability issue and the state and local uh, government issue. That's really a very poor reflection on our system. And I'm not sure we need it in across the board set of checks uh, for households at this date given that the vaccine is on the way, given that there's very substantial accumulated savings in large parts of the household sector. So I'm glad to see that stimulus is coming. I'm glad to see help for small business. I'm glad to see continuation of uh, unemployment insurance, but this is not as good a bill as we could have had. Still, it's better than I expected uh, two weeks ago, and we should be grateful for that. So, so pick up on your point about checks going to everybody, regardless of what their particular needs are or not. We heard from Chair Jay Powell of the Federal Reserve this week saying he thinks overall that the prospects are brightening for the U.S. economy in 2021. We have a rough patch to go through, but we do have a vaccine coming. But he also pointed out that really below that top line number, there are some people doing very, very well, whether it's individuals or corporations or and other people doing really not well at all. What can we do about that part of the problem? Look, it's a K-shaped recovery. Uh, There's no question that for people who can sit in the solitary splendor of their homes, uh, doing their work by Zoom, having their groceries uh, delivered um, with more family around than uh, usual, this has not been an agonizing period. For others who work with their hands, who are providing... uh, those uh, deliveries who don't have the kind of space to be fully safe and 
may not even have the kind of cash flow to be able to buy both their medicines and their food. It's been a very, very difficult uh, period. This is why we need a more just and generous uh, society. We need a stronger set of uh, refundable tax credits, particularly the childcare uh, tax credit. Above all though, we need to run this economy strong and have an economy where the dominant theme is jobs trying to find workers rather than the dominant theme being workers trying to find jobs. If we do that, then the engine of capitalism will be harnessed uh, towards fairness. People will be sending buses into disadvantaged communities to find and attract and pull out uh, employees. People will be providing second chance training programs for felons, for others who may not have traditionally attractive uh, credentials for work. But if you can run the economy to the point where people are sufficiently eager for workers, you can cause all kinds of good social things to happen. Larry, as you just laid out, the Biden administration, as it comes in next month, has a long list on its agenda economically for the United States. At the same time, I wonder about globally. Uh, can we really succeed in the long term in the United States without having the global economy recover? What lessons are there from the pandemic for the global economy? I used to say when I was Treasury Secretary that the world economy couldn't fly forever on a single American uh, engine or that no nation can be an oasis of prosperity in a troubled world. I think we're going to reap uh, very substantial consequences from the fact that after decades, when developing countries were developing and were catching up with the world's major uh, economies, that trend is going into reverse uh, right now, given the difficulties they're having in managing COVID, managing reduced exports, managing heavy debts, managing reduced uh, remittances. And we need to step up on that. We need to step up with very substantial global financial support provided through the international financial institutions. We need to uh, step up uh, with uh, an SDR, special drawing right allocation from uh, the IMF. We need to step up with much more investment in making sure that there's not another uh, pandemic and while we're at it, making sure that there really are the resources to get vaccine to all the people on the planet, not just the people in the rich countries, um, as quickly as uh, possible. Uh, we've got two K-shaped recovery problems we need to fight. A K-shaped recovery problem in uh, America and a K-shaped uh, recovery problem uh, globally. It, Ultimately, it's going to be cheaper for us to fight that fight, to support uh, developing countries sooner rather than to support them uh, later. And I hope that one of the first initiatives of the Biden administration will be bringing a global dimension to the COVID recovery effort. So that's a global perspective. Let's go local now. Uh, we talk about global Wall Street. Let's talk about New York Wall Street, and particularly New York City, the metropolitan area. W what is going to happen to some of the vibrant cities like New York? They're also high-priced. San Francisco is another example. 
What's going to happen as a result of this pandemic? We're seeing surveys now of various people, both people who hire and the workers themselves saying they think they're going to be working from home a lot more. Look, I think in terms of cities, the tendency has been for the last several decades in the United States for the rich to get richer, for the force to be uh, center in rather than uh, center out. I think that may change. The combination of people being uncomfortable with density, even uh, post-COVID, having seen what technology in terms of working at home uh, can enable, the fact that there's no longer state and local tax deductibility means that the tax burdens associated with our major cities are much more burdensome for the affluent people who uh, live in them. A sense that people are moving out rather than moving in, which then creates a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I would expect uh, that if you look at great cities like New York, uh, like San Francisco, like uh, Los Angeles, that it's likely to be a difficult uh, few years of declining public services, declining in migration, increasing uh, out uh, migration. And so my guess is we're gonna see a quite substantial turn. Doesn't give me any pleasure uh, to make that forecast since in many ways, I think those concentrations of talent have been what pushed uh, our country forward. But uh, I think you're going to see quite dramatic changes in traditional patterns of economic geography. We always like to end the week with a lightning round, as Summer says. Let's take three questions here. Number one, we heard Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed this week, say he's not going to back up bond buying until we really restore a lot of the employment. When are we going to be back to 4% unemployment rate in this country? End of 2022. And what about inflation? He also talked about inflation. When will we be back over 2% inflation in the United States? Sometime during 2022, we'll see at least several months because of some combination of specific factors where the inflation rate will get above 2020, above 2% um, would be my guess. I think that may come sooner than people think. And Larry, finally, we've seen yet again the markets really hold up no matter what's going on with respect to COVID-19 as it spreads rapidly throughout the country. Uh, Are the markets, the equity markets in particular, uh, are they justified right now? Are they priced about right? Are they overpriced? Where do you think they are? Many people think they're overpriced because they look at a very strong, very high price-earnings ratio. I think that uh, the kind of analysis that Chairman Powell offered in his testimony on Wednesday Um, or his press conference on Tuesday or Wednesday was uh, right when he emphasized you have to look at price earnings ratios in the context of real interest rates and that with real interest rates low for what I think are quite deep-seated structural uh, reasons, my guess is that you're going to uh, see markets uh, priced not unreasonably. That doesn't mean they're going to keep going up as fast as they have in the last six months. But I don't have a sense of extremely precarious bubble. 
What does that do to price discovery in the equity markets as a practical matter? Because the low interest rates are true for everybody, whether you're a well-run company or a poorly run company. Are we sustaining some, sometimes they call them zombie companies who don't have enough EBITDA to really, sta- to really service the debt. Is there a risk here to the economy in the long run that we don't have price discovery really sorting out the, the, the sheep from the goats, if I can put it that way, in corporations? There may be a bit of that, uh, David, but I actually think the larger effect is probably that low interest rates mean lower discounting of the future. And so everybody's encouraged to take a longer view in their economic decision making. And it's that forward looking activity that's most likely to deliver large external benefits uh, to the economy. So I think one should see these low interest rates more as an opportunity than as a burden. Okay, Larry Summers, it's always a delight to end the week with you. That is our special contributor, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary of Harvard. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.